Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, episode 52. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, or you might be in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is made for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Today's guest on the Entrepreneur Architect podcast is a registered architect based in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He's worked in the architectural field since 1993, specializing in high-end residential architecture. He's published in a variety of professional journals and magazines. He's worked on projects that have received AIA and Builders uh, Awards in residential architecture. He's the creator of How To Architect, the website, and the How To Architect YouTube channel. The YouTube channel has over 160 videos, 50,000 YouTube subscribers, and over 12 million video views web-wide. Wow, that's awesome. He's the author of How To Architect, which is a book published by the MIT Press back in the spring of 2012. He's a co-founder of RootFi LLC, a product development company, a co-creator and inventor of three patented products, including one for Avifauna and a method in plastics manufacturing. He's created and spun out two businesses, including Golasis LLC, 
which was acquired by a publicly held footwear company and uh, Reclaim LLC, which licensed technology to San Francisco-based soft good company Timbuktu. You may have heard of them. He's the creator of, of the Architects Academy, an online classroom teaching architecture and design. He's classically trained as a painter, and he sold artwork through Target, yes, the stores, Target stores nationally. Doug Pat is most certainly an entrepreneur architect. Doug, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Mark. Um, I'd like to start off with your origin story, kind of get this, the, the story of, of where you've come from. It sounds like it might be a long story, and that's okay. <laughs> so uh, you know, when did you know that you wanted to be an architect and, and start way back and, and kind of give us the, the story of your journey to where you are today? Well, it's an interesting question. I actually, in the beginning, I don't think I ever knew that I wanted to be an architect. My dad, I came home from school one day and my dad asked me if I was going to go to college. And I told him I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to fix cars. <laughs> and, oh, car guy. I'm a car guy too. So we'll oh, that's talk about great. That too. Absolutely. So anyway, he said, um, well, listen, Dougie, I think, you know, someday you're going to want to be able to take care of yourself and maybe a family if you have one. And I think you should go to college. So I give it some consideration. And so I did. And a couple of weeks later, he asked me, do you want to go to college? I said, yeah, I, I guess so. Well, where do you want to go? I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, well, look, why don't you go to Penn State? I mean, my parents went to Penn State and my aunt and uncles went to Penn State. Grandparents went to Penn State. We had visited Penn State hundreds, not hundreds of times, but tens of times over the years. And so I applied uh, to school there. But it was funny, when I was applying to school, my dad asked me what my major was going to be. And I told him I wanted to be, if I was going to go to college, uh, I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> so anyway, that didn't go over well either. And he said, well, look, you draw houses all the time and you love playing with Legos. Why don't you apply to be an architect? I think you'd make a great architect. And I hadn't really thought about it, but I applied for architecture, and by some miracle, I was accepted, and the rest is history. I loved it. Uh, I really enjoyed the theoretical aspects of architecture in school and was really drawn by that, and um, it's surprising then that I enjoy doing what I do as an architect so much. I really love the people part and the being on site and the building aspect of architecture a lot. But in the beginning, it really was, for me, all about the theoretical stuff. And that's why I went back to graduate school. And I was really going to stay in school and get a PhD. Um, but at some point, you got to get out into the real world and make money. And that's what I had to do and ultimately did. So that's the story. That's a very interesting story. It, um, uh, let's, let's quick go back to the cars. What kind of cars do you like? Oh my gosh. Well, my favorite cars, I would say the Mustang, uh, 68, 72, you know, fastback, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Big fans of, you know, older cars, the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Hot yeah. rods. You're big right, fan. right. When, right where I like to be. I'm, I have a 69 Camaro. I've had since. You do. Yeah. Oh my God. I've had it so since great. I was 16. I bought oh it. I bought goodness. it in 86 and never sold it. 
That is amazing. Those cars are very valuable. Yeah, it's it's it's, well uh, it's fun. It's fun to play with. My kids, my kids enjoy it too. I'm glad I never got rid of it. My dad is a, a retired auto mechanic. Really? So so it it, it uh, you know fast cars sort of run in my veins. So yeah. wow, that's really neat. Yeah, I love cars. For I had a Porsche. I bought a Porsche. Oh, yeah? We lived in New York. I bought a uh, what was it? It was an '84. It was the first year, or the first year of the three point two liter engine, I believe, and uh, it was a great, it was a great car. But it was very expensive to maintain. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, got rid of it, but uh, it was a great, very pretty nine eleven Targa black. Do you awesome. still tinker, or are you? Uh... No, I have, I have absolutely no time. I, you know, yeah. if I could, now that now we've got kids and you know yep. the whole thing, but at some point I will. Yeah, I don't. Look I don't. To that. I, I, my car was in storage for about 10 years i put Oof. it away i used to put it away every summer and take it out you know the next or the, every winter and i would take it out every summer yeah and uh the year i got married i put it away thinking i'd take it out the next summer <laughs> and it stayed there until about five years ago oh and my so gosh it's just you know life sort of gets in the way of of those things and your priorities shift and, and it wasn't that important how old are your kids now i have uh, a 12 year old a nine year old and a seven year old two okay. two boys and a little girl Okay, I'm right around there too. I've got a seven and eleven, both girls. Yeah, so I I completely understand your your time commitment to uh, yeah. to the things that matter most right now. Right. Yeah, there's always time for uh, for fast cars later on. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> time and money. Yeah. Let's hope. So I'd like to talk. I I love your background. I love how diverse your your uh, career has been. Uh, I love that it's more than just traditional architecture, but you're still fully involved in traditional, you know, architecture, the traditional practice of traditional architecture, um, not necessarily design of traditional architecture. Um, but um, I love the the story of of your product development. Could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing those kind of things and, and a little bit of the process of, of taking an idea to market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start a little ways back. Back in 2000, I studied classical painting with a gentleman in Copley, of all places, Copley, Pennsylvania, named Myron Barnstone. And that led to, I was asked to do a painting for the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. It's a long name, but it was an interesting cause. And I was very lucky to ask to get to do the painting. It was a it was an auction item at an event where Bruce Willis and Muhammad Ali that featured those two. I did the painting, and the painting was bought by the uh, one of the senior executives at Target. And when he bought the painting, uh, he liked it so much that he turned it into a framed piece of artwork, and that sold in Target. I was commissioned to do a second painting. But anyway, that, I think, awakened a entrepreneurial spirit in me, you know, one that I've always thought about. One other quick story. Uh, at I, As you know, I went to Penn State, and I remember sitting in a stadium – uh, they had just expanded the stadium and there were over 100,000 people out there. And, and this was in my early 30s. And I looked out and I thought, gosh, you know, if I sold something for, for $10 to everybody in the stadium at the same time, it cost me $5 to make, I'd make $500,000 in one day. Yeah. And that was a really neat idea that I that that hung with me for a long time. And so... After this whole painting thing started and I saw a product sitting in Target, I thought, gosh, I got to give this a shot. And, you know, I, like many other people, have interesting ideas, never really knew what to do with them. 
And so at some point I thought, I'm going to start a business and I'll call it an idea company. I didn't even know there were such things. And a business partner and I got this thing rolling back in about 2005, a guy named uh, Brian Whitlin, who became a good friend. And he was, at the time he was at Stanford University and he and I worked together and we created this business and we took our ideas and we eventually we draw them up and, and architects already have the skills to do these things. So we've got these interesting ideas. And the great thing about architects is we learn how to draw stuff. And we learn technical drawing. So we can draw these things. And with technology today, the way it is, you can draw just about anything anyway. So I would do all the technical drawings. I learned how to write patents. I wrote, I, I, wrote, I read a couple books on patent writing. And so I, I, we learned how to write provisional patent applications, which uh, is a place setter for about a year for any invention. So we learned how to do that. And we, we, Originally, we tried to sell our ideas, and somebody once said to me, it's impossible to sell an idea, and it, it actually is almost impossible to sell an idea, but it's not impossible to sell a prototype, and it's not it's actually relatively easy, well, relative to those things, easier to sell something that's actually selling in the marketplace. So you got to decide what you want to do. If you want to go to business for yourself, you want to take a product to market, or you want to sell an idea that's prototyped and et cetera. So that's what we did. And eventually we got to a point where we had a great idea and it was prototyped, but the prototypes weren't great. We had a company that was interested in it, but they said, look, you make it and we'll sell it. And so we went back to our lawyers and our lawyers said, look, you guys can become manufacturers if you want to. And we thought, wow, how do we do that? And so that opened up a whole new world uh, to me as well. And I ultimately became a manufacturer. So now I can come up with an idea. I can draw the thing. I can prototype it. I can actually make it. And I do with other people all the branding and uh, marketing and website stuff. And so I learned how to do all those things over the course of about five years. And ultimately we came up with a product idea that we sold and we manufactured, we sold in the marketplace. We hired some great people to do all the branding for us and packaging and we worked with them. We took it to market and then one day somebody called and said, hey, we want to buy your company. And uh, so we did that back in about 2007, 2008. What was the name of that company that you started? It was called Go Laces LLC. And that was the company we sold to a large manufacturer here in the United States. So that was the company that you started started with Brian. Yes, one of them. That came up with this, the idea of selling ideas and then realized that it wasn't going to work so easily. Exactly. And it just kept taking it to the next level and next level and next level until you became a manufacturer and and all your ideas, you had everything in place to be able to, to... to you know, take it from an idea to the market. Yes, yeah, succinctly, that's a good way to put it. That's exactly how it worked. How now, it, were you doing that at the same time as practicing architecture, or were you were you doing that? Step, you know, did you take time off from architecture to do that? Well, interestingly, things started to slow down uh, when when things were heating up with one of our product businesses. So that was actually kind of a good thing. Uh, but I, I have kept doing architectural work just about the entire time. There were, you know, six month periods where things were so slow that it was mostly not, it was mostly product development stuff. There was almost no, uh, architectural work. Um, but over the last 20 years, I've probably been practicing architecture more on than off. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, at some point you only have enough time in the day to do 
right. all of these things. So, right. but, I mean, it, it, it sounds like, uh, I mean, architecture alone, as everybody listening knows, uh, is tremendously time consuming. And so how do you fit in, you know, launching another business and actually developing it into all those other things? Is it just a matter of priorities? Yeah, it's priorities. I mean, it's deciding what jobs are going to pay and what aren't. And, you know, most of the things that I do outside of architecture just don't pay. They're speculative. They're quite challenging. If you've got a family, my wife and I both work full time. So it's challenging. Every day, you know, I'll wake up and I'll look at my list of things to do and I'll pick the things. And some days are, you know, easier than others to pick the things that don't make money. But I also write books. I just finished my fourth book and I'm ultimately going to try to get that published. And so I'm always working on something different, but architecture is the bread and butter for, uh, for our family here, what's as well as my wife's job is. What, what's the new book? Uh, it's currently called old school architect. And uh, it's all about things that I perceive as being uh, lost or forgotten in architecture. And so it's kind of a, I'm not an old man, but a 45 year old, guys look at uh, where architecture was, where it is for me, where it's going, and and maybe some of the things that I can pass along to younger people that I believe they should remember about uh, being an architect. So yeah, that sounds uh, it sounds like a great book. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. Thank you very much. Let's hope again. Let's hope MIT yeah. likes it. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, was that same the same desire to sort of give back and, and teach about architecture? Is that sort of what inspired Architects Academy? I love to teach and I have never found the time. You know, I, I think one of the things, well, I know one of the things I always wanted to do early on was become a teacher, not a practicing architect. architect. So that fulfills, you know, that part of my life. I love to sit and talk with people who are interested in learning particularly about architecture. And so that's a really fun thing. And the Academy's neat because I can talk to people that literally come from all over the world. And they many times have the same questions. They're wondering the same things. And it's also a way to talk about something that nobody ever talked to me about in college and that was how to do what you do as a designer so nobody ever broke down the process of design for me you know as a first or second year student a common uh project is to say look i want you to come up with an idea or a theme and we're going to turn it into a building okay great it's a great exercise and that's exactly what we do as architects only we've got you know 10 or 20 or 50 ideas or themes and we're turning those into a real building for people so that it works and so that it's beautiful. But nobody ever broke that process down for me. And so that's what I do at the Academy is I break it down into really simple steps. So an easy way to look at it, an easy way to see what I teach at the Academy is to go to my YouTube videos and look at the how to design like an architect, the most recent series. So the video that's posted on my website, on my YouTube page, uh, that begins to break down that process. There are really simple questions that we ask as architects and all of the answers to those questions start to inspire architects. And that's how we get designed. But interestingly, as a product developer, as a product designer, they do the same thing. So again, you know, back to your point about architects being able to do things that uh, product developers do, 
the reason I can do what I do is because we're taught exactly the same things that product developers, product designers are taught uh, in terms of making something. Only we make something that's habitable, hopefully. Yeah. And they don't, you know, but they make something that's functional and we do too. Right. So. What's, what's the process, just quick to go back to the, to, to the, um, to the product development, what's the process of, because uh, you said that selling an idea is very difficult but selling a prototype it becomes a little easier and obviously selling a selling you know a sellable product is is the next level but um what's the process of of getting a prototype built is that just something outsourced or yeah yeah you know people don't like what i have to say uh american manufacturing is quite challenging because it's so expensive so at least in the early stages uh, when we're creating even prototype molds in you know factories in the U.S., we can be spending tens of thousands of dollars making tools to make prototypes. Whereas in Asia, in, in certified factories, we can make those you know for ten times less. And so that's really where you start. But I'll tell you, it's interesting. Uh, when I started, I went to a website called MFG. I think it's MFG.com, manufacturing.com, and there you can sign disclosure agreements. And you can specify exactly what you want to make. And then 15 different factories all over the world give you a price for making that prototype. And that's a very easy way. And today, uh, laser cutting and water jet um, make things even easier, even here in the U.S., less expensive. And so you can prototype things for very little money today. Just 15, 10 or 15 years ago when I was prototyping, even making tools was much more expensive. So... Look, when, you know, when we make products, small-time entrepreneurs with very little money are going to go to Asia, they're going to go to India, they're going to prototype there. That's just the way, that's the way the world works. But ultimately, you know, you can come back here once you've got your tools and start making things in factories in the U.S. But that's the way it works and that's the way it started for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And, and that doesn't mean that you're taking away from the U.S. because there's, although you can find that here, it, they're not, it's not really what the U.S. is really good at. Yeah. Asia is very good at that. And so once you have those ideas, then you bring it back and you can put people to work here on, on other parts of that business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bring jobs back here and just, you know, get a business rolling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so that's very interesting. So, you know, pretty, it sounds like it's pretty easy once you have the idea and you have it developed, uh, you know, prototyped digitally then you can find some manufacturers who can give you prototypes yep. uh, and put together something that then you can show people who may be interested in buying that idea or taking that idea to the next level with using that prototype. Yeah, it's taking taking a product to market is really the most difficult part of the process because today, um, excuse me, you wanna write provisional patent applications, you wanna get the thing patented, but you're gonna get ripped off very quickly. And uh, the, the one thing people don't realize is people don't rip, rip off products until they're actually making money. That's the way it usually works. So you want to take it to market as big as possible, get it out into as many markets as quickly as possible, particularly for the kinds of things that I take to market and um, do your very best very quickly. And hopefully you don't get ripped off too soon. You can make your money and, and move on to the next SKU and grow the business and that sort of thing. Right. How important is branding when you take it to market? Huge. It's, yeah. it's huge. 
it's a big part. You want to hire somebody who really knows what they're doing. Most people think that they can do just about every part of this process well, but we learned pretty quickly and unusually that if you hire a good firm to do your branding and do a great job on packaging, you've got something that people are going to want when it's on the shelf. So it's very, very important. And you can, and again, you can do that for decent prices, you know, low tens of thousands of dollars. You can get that sort of thing done depending on your product. So I mean, a lot of times the, the, the value is in the brand, right? It is. Once you develop that product, often if you've, you've established a very strong, valuable brand, you might be acquired or licensed rather than ripped off because they want the brand as well as the product. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there are a lot of architects out there that, <laughs> that are uh, sort of closet product developers that have these ideas and bouncing around in their heads. And, you know, in 10 years down the road, they, they find the product out in the market and they say, ah, oh, I designed that in my head 10 years ago. And, <laughs> Happens to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, uh, so anybody out there who's listening, it's not that hard. Go, go, give it a shot. Um, let's go back to how to architect and the Architect Academy. The the um, talk a little bit about what Architect Academy is. Is what what is the the audience and who, and you described before that it's teaching uh, about architecture and design, but but who is your audience there and uh, and. And what is the role of that of that uh, platform? Well, interestingly, I've had students as young as 12 or 13 that have wanted to get involved. I don't like to have a student unless they're just a little bit older. <clears throat> but I've had students from, uh, let's say, 16 or 17 years of age to 65. So it is a very broad demographic. Interestingly, my YouTube channel, early on, I, I looked at the demographics and I thought, this has got to be wrong. Or, you know, early in the days of YouTube, back in 2000, even 2008, when I started the, the How to Architect uh, website and YouTube channel, I'd look at demographics and I think there's no way they're even from 13 to 65. In, in fact, at times, the demographic between, let's say, 25 and 55 was the largest segment. And I never quite understood that. It's still tough to get my head wrapped around. I would think that it's mostly students that are watching the videos, but it's not. And so that explains the wide demographic of people that email me or, you know, sign up for the academy. They come and they say, hey, you know what? I always wanted to be an architect. Yeah, this is interesting to me. That's the famous line. I always Absolutely. wanted to be an architect. So you get people like that. I had a nuclear sub operator or a nuclear sub technician who took the class. I've had young architects take the class. I've had architecture teachers take the class. I've had kids that are thinking about becoming architects. And I've had people who don't even do anything related to architecture that are just interested in or have always wanted to be architects. So you get all kinds of people. And that's great because what I teach is so simple in some ways that it's just a very easy, broken down way of thinking about design. So it doesn't matter if they can sketch well or draw or they've ever taken a CAD course. They don't need any of that stuff. They just need a piece of paper. And I say it on the website, piece of paper and a pencil, and it's a done deal. And I think it's a great way to introduce people to what they might be learning in architecture school or teaching them something that will be a valuable skill when they get to architecture school. So it's worked out well. Unfortunately, over the last four months, I haven't had any time to teach it. So 
I'm hoping maybe in January to have some live classes. The nice thing is you can sign up for the Academy and just take the classes, which many people do. And they never, you know, they never meet with me live, but I will say that there, you know, I get so many emails from young people saying, look, I'm wondering whether or not this profession is right for me. And many times, you know, I've got to send them a very short email because as you and I both know, you don't have a ton of time. And I always wonder, gosh, if they just signed up for the Academy, I'd I'd be able to sit down with them because I had made the time. I set it aside on Saturday morning and we have class for 45 or 50 minutes and I could talk with them for 15 minutes and actually tell them what I think. You know, interestingly, one of the one of the one of the odd things about uh, students asking those questions is they all ask just about the same thing. They it, it comes down to is architecture right for me? And they might tell me two or three things in an email about themselves. But as you and I know, it's it's so hard to know. I mean, you could get somebody you think is going to be perfect for architecture. It doesn't work out. And then somebody who perhaps it's unlikely that architecture is really going to work out for them and they kind of grow into it. So, I mean, there are certain things you just got to be good at, but um, I don't know. It's interesting. So I get a wide variety of students. I really do. Yeah. Very interesting. So it's, um, so it's a series of videos in the Academy and then, and then you all also occasionally teach live classes. That's correct. So I teach live classes once a month when I <clears throat> have enough enrollment and I have the time. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a series of videos that they can watch. So they've got studio videos. <clears throat> then they've got videos that are about Photoshop and Illustrator and other stuff like that. So. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, that's a great service to our profession to kind of teach teach outside the profession uh, what we're all about. <coughs> a great way to, to, to be a leader in the profession. Yeah. It's been wonderful. And did uh, did um, how to architect how to architect started first, right? Hold on, a second. <laughs> I got an awful cold. Do you mind if I do a little coughing? No, no problem. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. That's why I got my coffee. <laughs> so, could you say that again? My question was um, the how how to architect came first, correct? That's correct. So what inspired you to to launch How to Architect, the website, as well as the YouTube channel? Well, I was working on uh, the Architects Bird Feeder website, and I got this great guy uh, who had studied painting with me back in uh, – actually, he was an earlier student. He was recommended to me to do website design. I gave him a call, and he and I worked together to create the, the first Bird Feeder website. And actually, it's still – it's, it's pretty much the same as it, it, it was back then. Uh, that's www.abirdfeeder.com or architectsbirdfeeder.com. And, and that, I, was, so, that was a product that you designed? And, yes, yeah. and I, I was just awarded a U.S. patent on that, actually. Great. Uh, so, it's yeah, it's a, a series of uh, fixed planes, uh, eight parts. They're polycarbonate, and they lock and slide together. So it uses gravity and fiction friction to be held together rather than any tools or fasteners that need to be used. So, you know, I, I love arts and crafts furniture. And so that's really where that idea originated. But so we're working on the website and he said, gosh, Doug, I love your handwriting. You should make a video about architects handwriting. And I was, I was like, no way, you know, I have no idea how to make a YouTube video. I have no idea how to make a video and how the heck do I do that? And how, where do I mount the camera and how do I, Anyway, I worked through it, and he just kept bothering me about it. So I made a video, 
and I put he he created the YouTube channel. I think it was called <clears throat> Doug Pat Com or something like that. And uh, we posted the video, and a, uh, who was it? Core seventy seven picked up the video. I have no idea how they found it. That's a big blog. That's a big yeah, blog. Core seventy seven is a big design blog. So they picked it up, posted it. And what I was surprised, he said, gosh, Doug, there are a lot of people watching this video. I had no idea that would happen. Went and looked at it. And on the Core 77 blog, people were allowed to comment. And I was blown away by how mean people were. <laughs> so this was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. <clears throat> oh, this guy's probably not an architect. His writing is crap. This is, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. There's nothing to learn here, you know, whatever it was. I was so upset. I could not believe all of this stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> I went on to make two or three more videos and we posted them on that site. <clears throat> and, you know, as I'm, and, and the videos were being watched on YouTube, surprisingly, and I started getting subscribers, but it was all very upsetting. You know, there were, the greater majority of comments were really nice, but there were just a few people who were just so ugly. Yeah. And so one night I came home from a party, I, I opened it up, I looked at a comment and I just deleted the entire channel off of YouTube. I was so fed up with the whole thing. I told my wife, oh, Doug, why did you do that? Your videos were so neat and you enjoyed making them. I said, Susan, my feelings are hurt. This is so upsetting. I'm so tired of dealing with these people. So a couple months went by and I really missed making the videos. So one day, one Saturday, I think it was, uh, <clears throat> it was September the 11th, 2008. My wife was walking through the office. I turned to her. I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about creating another YouTube channel. I'll repost those videos. I'll, I'll start making some more. And I just won't worry about what people think anymore. She said, great. I'm, I'm proud of you. That's great. And I said, well, what should I call it? She said, ah, I don't know. Call it um, How to Architect. And that was it. That's a great name. Great, yeah. a great brand. <laughs> That's so funny. So anyway, it turned out to be a, a lot more than just that. But uh, posted those videos and and I just haven't had a whole lot of time to make videos lately. I think there are some 220 videos. There are only about 160 posted. There are many videos that are private and I've created for other people or businesses and things that have link, links just specifically through sites. But I've done all kinds of different videos, even for things other than architecture, uh, just to make a little money on the side and, and uh, do enjoyable work. So. And and recently you've been involved with developing videos for the AIA and, and CRAN, correct? Yeah, that's been really fun. I was after CRAN. I was asked to be a keynote speaker for the CRAN group in Indianapolis a few years back. And that was a, just a wonderful experience. When they called me, I was surprised that they even called because I was not a member of the AIA and uh, <clears throat> had never really been a big fan of these big groups. And I didn't think I'd ever join the American Institute of Architects. But uh, he said, oh, you, you, John Ish was the guy I talked to. And John said, Doug, you don't have to be a member of the AIA. We'd love to have you come, especially in this economy. We could, you could talk to people about what you do and how you've branched out of architecture and all the different stuff that people really enjoy the talk. And it was just a wonderful experience. And I've got to say, I mean, the Cran people are just great. And it's so nice to sit around with people who do the same thing that you do. 
And so they've experienced all the challenging things you've experienced and they work on the same kinds of projects. And so you can just sit and talk about architecture and specifically residential architecture. I've enjoyed that so much. So needless said, I joined the AIA and I joined CRAN and I've tried to get a little more involved and really, really enjoy it. So as you know, it's growing and I would say to anybody out there listening, CRAN is a wonderful knowledge community of great people, and it's well worth going to their events. Just a great time, and they're kind of subsidized. They're they're really outstanding events, and the speakers were unbelievable this time around. So it can only I, – I, I'm not sure if it can only go downhill from there because <laughs> they were top of the line. It was, it was wonderful. So. Yeah, it, I agree. For anybody <laughs> who doesn't know, uh, CRAN is the Custom Residential Architect Network. And it, and it was uh, actually, it was formed by a group of residential architects that, that, that it wasn't an AIA group. It was a, it was a separate group and uh, it, it grew on its own. And then the AIA approached them and asked if they wanted to, to become part of the AIA as a, as a knowledge community. And they just recently did that in the last few years. And what that has done is given them uh, more support and more money to develop the CRAN programs and uh, and take their their annual symposium, which this year was in Charleston, South Carolina, which is actually where Doug and I met. Um, I had been following you for a long, much longer than that, Doug. But I was I was glad to, to finally have met you. And um, thanks, Mark. But but the uh, I would and, and still to this day, if if you don't want to be an AIA member but want to be involved in Cran, my understanding is that you still can be involved and participate with Cran without being an AIA member. So. Uh, I highly recommend any residential architect out there to to look into it. And I would second what Doug said about sitting uh, among your peers and just being able to sit down and talk about residential architecture. My wife, Anne Marie, who is also an architect, uh, is my partner here at Five Cat Studio, uh, also doesn't like the big organizations, just doesn't like to participate in that kind of thing and doesn't ever go to conventions. Mm. And I convinced her to go to South Carolina with me and and the draw was Charleston. But when she got there, it she realized how great it was to be there and to talk to other residential architects and to sort of be in that environment and to listen to those speakers. Um, she she was so excited about being there and and to uh, and to go to the next one. So um, I I second your thoughts on on Cran and their and their impact they're having. Yeah, in fact, they're they're the most active knowledge community the AIA has currently. And so now the AIA is going to them for advice <clears throat> about all kinds of things. So it's a it's a really wonderful group. So what happened when I first met uh John Ish and did the talk <clears throat> and a few other uh gentlemen, I said, look, we should do some videos together. This would be great. And we could do any number of subjects. And so we discussed this for this went on for a couple of years. And eventually I got a call from David Androsi and he said, look, Doug, you know, we think we're going to do this. And uh, so let's put our heads together and, and get together a, a series of videos that would be helpful for all of the architects at CRAN and their clients. And so that's what we're doing now. We're making videos that clients, architects can sit down with their clients and say, look, <clears throat> you need to watch this series of five or 10 or 15 videos about residential architecture, about making your building. This is what we're about to do. 
So, and, and we can do it in stages. So you can sit down and watch one, you can watch three, and we can talk about what you just learned. And it's going to be very helpful in educating you about what you're about to do. Or people that are inclined not to use an architect because they don't think they can afford one or they, you know, they just don't need one. We can help to convince people that, hey, look, you know, we provide a really valuable service and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And your project is going to be way better because we've got all of this experience, all this great experience to share with you. So and that's worked out very well so far. So we're on our fifth video. We're actually currently working on the script. And <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and produce that probably over the next couple of weeks. So yeah, they're, it's going well. They're very, very well done. And, and architects are encouraged to not only share them, but to link to them and post them on your own website to, uh, to spread the word about what architects do. Uh, and how we do it. They're they're an excellent um, resource for for anyone who wants to uh, to share them. Yeah, they've been great. So uh, I I think we're probably <laughs> wrapping up our time here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, Doug. Um, you're Doug Pat on Twitter, correct? At Doug Pat. I it's how to architects. Oh, it's how to architects or Doug Pat. I think okay. you can find me either way. There aren't many Doug Pats out there. Okay, or but uh, how to architect. <clears throat> how to architect. Probably the one that you're more active on. Um, is there any other way that people can contact you if they wanted to say thank you for your time here on the podcast? Oh, absolutely. Just go to howtoarchitect.com and there's a contact section through the menu <clears throat> and they can talk, contact me that way or they can uh, contact me through YouTube. Great. And I will ha I'll have links to all of the resources we talked about today on the show notes at the, at the blog. Um, so I uh, encourage you to go to the blog and search for Doug Pat and you'll find those those. Uh, those notes and all those links to everything uh, Doug is doing. So uh, one easy place to find find all of those those uh, connections. So Doug, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, to chat with me today. I appreciate it. Mark, it was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me. This episode of the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast was brought to you by Entrepreneur Architect Academy. Entrepreneur Architect Academy is a community of like-minded entrepreneur architects seeking to take their small firms to greater success. Members benefit from having free access to all the products offered by Entrepreneur Architect now and into the future for as long as they are members. We also meet weekly on a private video conference where we discuss a new topic of business and dive deep into building a successful small firm architecture studio. This is an opportunity to be part of a group of professionals who are determined take their businesses, their lives, and their leadership to the next level. If you're interested in learning more about Entrepreneur Architect Academy, please visit entrearchitect.com slash academy. And if you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review. This is how you may help me spread the word about Entrepreneur Architect and our mission to become an influential force in this profession of architecture. Go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes or in iTunes search for Entrepreneur Architect. You'll find us there. We have no new U.S.-based reviews, but my goal is still 100 by the end of the year, and it's not looking good, my friends. So please, if you're interested and you want to help me out, let's see how high we can get our numbers up before January 1. entrearchitect.com slash iTunes. And that's a wrap on episode number 52. Show notes may be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 52. 
Until next week, my name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.